Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Mike Pellini. Mike is a managing partner with Section 32, a venture firm that invests in biotech startups. He's an expert in diagnostics. He was previously the CEO of Foundation Medicine, a company that looks at a wide range of gene mutations in tumor samples that can act as molecular drivers of cancer. I've known Mike for about 10 years. It was really cool to see that company grow up and mature. It was acquired by Roche in 2018 for $2.4 billion. Lately, Mike has been putting his 20 years of experience in diagnostics to work in helping leaders in industry and policymakers think about how to better meet the urgent need for national testing in this COVID-19 pandemic. The federal government's initial testing plan was an epic failure, but he and I didn't spend time talking about that today. We're both more interested in what can be done going forward to create a new testing system with the people, the supplies, the coordination, and the resources they need to test all 330 million Americans. Getting that much data and aggregating that, along with a few other kinds of data we talk about in this show, into a national shared surveillance system is the kind of thing we need to think about creating over the coming months. It's what we'll need to get the country back to something approximating normal life. For background, you can read a guest editorial that Mike wrote for Timmerman Report on March 28. The headline was, Knowledge is Power. Now that article, like all ongoing coverage of the pandemic, is being made freely available for everyone on TimmermanReport.com. That includes people who don't subscribe. Normally, I depend on putting up a paywall on my site, which requires people to pay to read my articles. That's how I make a living. But these aren't normal times. We're in a public health emergency, and I want everyone to have access to the same quality information I regularly provide to biotech professionals who subscribe to my newsletter. If you aren't a subscriber already, you can go to TimmermanReport.com subscribe to purchase one for yourself or a friend or your whole company. Now, please join me and Mike Pellini on the long run. Mike Pellini, welcome to The Long Run. Uh, it's great to be here, Luke. So, Mike, I'm really happy to have you on the show today talking about the need for diagnostic testing of COVID-19. Um, this has been the big story. Um, it, it still kind of shocks me. Have, not a lot does. <laughs> Having been a journalist for many years, I, I really did. I am surprised that it's gone this badly um, for the country, uh, that we've been unable to run the tests that we need to run um, to mount a defense. Um, and I'm guessing, like, you've been around a long time, too. Has, has that been your feeling as well? You know, I, in, in some ways, uh, where we are with diagnostic testing today, unfortunately, does not shock me. Um, of course, where we are as a nation in terms of our response to COVID uh, is extraordinarily concerning. It's sad. It's disappointing. It's disheartening, and I can continue down that path. But the reason I started with started answering your question by saying in some ways it does not surprise me is that we as a nation have historically undervalued the need for and the value of diagnostic testing. We've 
It's not only in the course of COVID that we've done that. We've actually been doing that for the past couple of decades. And, you know, there are stats out there that certainly point to the value of diagnostics. Um, there are the sheer economics stats, which, uh, which you know very well, uh, whereby diagnostic decisions uh, or diagnostic test results guide 70 to 80 percent of all medical decisions we make in the country, while at the same time, the cost make up only about two to three percent of our overall healthcare costs. Okay, let's stop so right there. A- let's stop right there, Mike. I mean, that's an important point, a contextual frame for people to think about this. Because if you just rewind a few weeks, um, you know, I think the public got the message that the federal government um, lost a lot of time. It wasn't able to ramp up the testing uh, that we needed to get done for COVID-19. And then the request was put out to private industry to ride to the rescue. We have a lot of capabilities there. But what we're saying here is that as a country, 70-80% of all medical decisions are guided by diagnostic lab testing. And we only spend two cents out of every healthcare dollar on diagnostic tests. We, we see them as cheap commodities, correct? We do, and shame on us for allowing us to be in that position. It's certainly a battle that I've been involved in for the past 20 years of my career. And so I certainly have to look to look to myself to say, you know, what else would we, you know, could we have done over the course of the past 20 years? But, you know, the, as we, you know, the biotech industry, the pharmaceutical industry, those are tremendous industries with an enormous, um, you know, an enormous capacity to innovate and enormous capacity to bring new therapeutic interventions for, you know, for patients that, that need, so desperately need these interventions. Yet, as you said, and I've said, so many of these therapeutic interventions are predicated upon getting the appropriate diagnostic test. But I think one of the important things that has changed in the last decade to some extent, but primarily in the past five years, and now continues to accelerate, is the fact that more of our therapeutic decisions, more of those high cost but important therapeutic decisions are now based on diagnostic testing. The challenge is that as an industry, um, uh, especially when it comes to compensation for these tests, we really haven't caught up to this connection between therapeutic decisions and diagnostic test results. That's the transition point that we've actually been in for several years. And I think the good thing is that we've made tremendous progress with the FDA. I do believe the FDA gets it. On the payer side, I'm much more reluctant to offer a sense of optimism around that because we still have such a long way to go. And also on the policy front, I think policymakers often do not think about diagnostic testing because we don't have the same type of lobbying that therapeutics and, 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 and biotech has. And they just don't see the diagnostic, uh, you know, they don't see the diagnostic components as, okay. as, as being a key part of the equation. Okay. But um, now we're in a crisis and everybody is kind of coming around to the idea that we do need diagnostics in a big, big way. Time um, to overhaul the system. Right. And let's come back to that in a second. But With COVID-19, I mean, we have the sequence now of this virus. It's out there. Lots of scientists are looking at it. And actually performing these tests is not a real high-tech 
sort of task. Um, as I understand, you take a nasal swab sample and you run it through a PCR machine to amplify the DNA that's in there, and you can get an answer. Uh, this is something that every hospital lab, every county hospital, Quest, LabCorp, I mean, thousands of, of people and labs are trained to, to do this test, right? Absolutely correct. And you're speaking to the choir. I make that point regularly, and it's really nice to hear you say it as well. So then, so then the question is, why can't we run them, right? Right. As we think about the challenges here, of course, we naturally start with, well, are the diagnostic kits available? But that is the starting point because first we need the kits and the supplies for the tests themselves. One box to check. The second box to check is where those tests are, perform- are performed. So what is our national laboratory capacity to run those tests, regardless of the number of kits that are available? How many can we actually run? Then how do we handle the third box to check is the logistics of the whole effort. Just because we have an adequate number of kits and thousands of labs in the country that are able to run those test kits, That does not mean that there's an appropriate balance between the first box and the second box. And then the fourth element is just the sheer ancillary supplies that come into play. We've all heard about the swab issue. You know, the the supply chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And what these past two months have demonstrated is that there there are lots of weak links in our diagnostic supply chain nationally. Now, for those not familiar, the swabs, I mean, this is the simplest thing to collect the sample from the patient's nose and cheap commodity part. It's probably manufactured in China, maybe somewhere else. But um, if you you can have the fancy instrument sitting in the lab that can do a PCR (laughs) test, but if you don't have a swab to collect the sample, it sits there unused. That's that's again, you're, you're, you're spot on. And as absurd as that sounds, that's exactly the situation that hospitals and collection centers are in, are, are in all over the country right now. They do not have adequate swabs from which to collect the nasal sample for the testing. Now, and, and actually, this is still a national issue because it's not only a local issue, but in the past 24 hours, I've been on, I've been on the telephone and on a conference, I've been on video calls with some of our national leaders that are trying to figure out how to solve this incredibly basic issue. It is a supply chain issue. And something I heard anecdotally the other day, which I know a number of folks are looking into, is there may be an IP issue around these nasal swabs as well. And that might be one of the bottlenecks. Now, I can't verify that, but that came up on one of our national calls in, in one of the national meetings the other day. And we were all scratching our heads when we heard that. What, what kind of IP is, could there be with a nasal swab? Great question. And uh, fortunately, one thing we do have in the country is uh, plenty of attorneys who can probably dive <laughs> into that one very quickly. Okay. Well, you know, Mike, the other thing, you've kind of touched on this already, but I want to come back to something that I heard an ER medicine physician from New York bring up the other day in terms of uh, explaining to an interviewer how their hospital thinks about preparing for this surge of patients. He thinks in three parameters, staff, stuff, and space. 
staff being, of course, you know, the doctors and nurses that, you know, you need to take care of patients, the stuff being, you know, the, the personal protective equipment, the ventilators, all kinds of other equipment, uh, and then the, the actual space. And if they have to carve out, you know, part of the Javits Center to create space for patients, they'll do that. Is there an analogy here? You've touched on a couple elements with diagnostics, but is that a useful way of thinking about, like in a broad sense, what's needed for the diagnostic testing challenge? Not only is it a useful way for thinking about it, it's an essential way to think about it because let's go back to that ER doc. If the ER physician was only thinking about staffing, he or she would only be focused on one part of the equation. I think the analogous elements of laboratory testing, now I wish I had a wonderful acronym or just you know an SSS, but it does come back to kits, manufacturing of kits, the availability of laboratories across the country to run those. So kits, labs, logistics, and then ancillary supplies. Those are the four pieces that must come together if we are going to pro provide testing for COVID at a national level. Now, it can't be done strictly at a local level. It cannot be done strictly at a state level. It must be done in conjunction with the federal government or at least at a national level. But it Everyone does need to be it does need to be decentralized, here. right? I mean, we started with, you know, people sending their samples off to the CDC lab in Atlanta via FedEx. And obviously, that's not a scalable situation for what we are in now. You need all your local labs engaged in all 50 states. Um, shorten the shipping times and everything else. Um, <clears throat> but we have seen a lot of activity from private industry stepping up, really being asked to, you know, ride to the rescue here. A number of companies that you um, are familiar with, uh, Roche and Thermal Fisher, Abbott Labs, to name a few. What difference is that making, do you think, to address some of these bottlenecks that you, you, you allude to? The diagnostic companies themselves, I think, have done, uh, you know, an outstanding job of responding to the challenge. We can look at the companies you mentioned, Roche and Thermo, um, Abbott Labs. They are pushing extremely hard. But in speaking to some of the senior, you know, my, my friends who are uh, even you know senior, uh, part of the senior leadership of some of those companies that you mentioned, what they're finding is that they are seeing much more well-coordinated requests coming in from other countries. I think we often forget that we are not the 50 states. We are the United States of America. And the challenge, one of the challenges, and we see this, sadly, we see this with the ventilators right now. Who the heck, you know, who would have ever thought that the average person in the United States would ever even think about a, the usage of a ventilator, let alone the distribution of available, of available ventilators in the United States? In many ways, it's the exact same challenge with diagnostic testing. We have the manufacturers producing the product, 
but they are getting requests from national laboratories. They're getting requests from local laboratories. I had one of my colleagues and friends tell me that, you know, when the hospital, when university hospitals started reaching out, it's, you know, it was basically the hospital that had the, the university that had the closest connection to maybe senior leadership at one of the, at one of these manufacturers. That's not because they were doing it for the wrong reason. They had no better way to do it. They were getting requests from everyone instead of a central resource that could ultimately help with the demand side throughout the 50 states of America. It's crazy. We need some type of national level response that helps us distribute these, helps distribute these kits to the appropriate laboratories. Is the equipment itself in place? I know a lot was made about this Abbott test and its ability to give a five-minute result um, on positive and I think 13 minutes for a negative test result. Um, that like appeals to people intellectually like, wow, that, that ought to be able to process a lot of samples in, in one day. And that's kind of what we need. Um, but there's something, there's something missing there, whether it's the people or the, the supplies that, that that's not really, um, playing out on the ground. It's not playing out on the ground, but I also believe, you know, for a number of reasons. And and certainly, do we have all the instrumentation in place that needs to be in place in order to meet the demand? And the answer is absolutely no. However, while we are working on supplying these laboratories with the appropriate, you know, with the appropriate platforms that they need to run these tests, we also have to recognize that in certain regions, in fact, in most regions, we have labs that are being overrun by specimens, and therefore they have a turnaround time of 10 days. And we have other laboratories whose COVID capacity is, you know, far exceeds what, you know, what their utilization is. And so even at the level where we are now, while we don't have all the equipment across the nation that is absolutely necessary to meet the demand, we could be doing so much better if we had a coordinated effort from the local level all the way through to the government, all the way through to the national level. And I want to make what I think is an important point here, because oftentimes, and I've read this this past, I've read it even the past week, where the media might pick up on a particular laboratory because they said, well, this laboratory is 10-day turnaround time, and yet they have not notified their customers that they should be sending specimens elsewhere. Well, that's possibly the issue, but more than likely the issue is that those local hospitals have contracts in place to direct their testing to that particular laboratory. And so, it's just in instinct that the specimen comes in, the person that's directing, collecting the specimens and directing them out goes to, you know, sends them to the laboratory with whom they have the relationship. The second part is a payer contract where within the vast majority of health systems and provider offices around the country, payers also have particular, also have specific agreements with particular laboratories. If we, even on a temporary basis, and even if it's just to carve out COVID, can eliminate those contractual obligations to both from both payers and also between, let's say, the health system and the send out laboratory, you know, that breaks down a huge barrier. So the, that ER, that drive-through clinic, that hospital, that provider office 
can start sending their specimens to whichever lab that particular day in that region has the best of it, has the greatest availability for testing and therefore the quickest turnaround time. There are very basic things that we can be doing here, Luke. Isn't this the sort of coordination that um, we expect from, say, a, a coronavirus czar like, you know, Dr. Deborah Burks or the director of the CDC? who just says, okay, to all the state labs, to all the university labs, um, this is how we're going to do it. This is the funnel it goes through. Luke, I think there are many, there are many mixed messages um, that the providers are receiving and, you know, and, and frankly, they are getting inundated. Um, I am sure there are lots of, lots of folks at the local all the way through to the federal government that have the best intention. But I can't help but question if we have people in place that really understand the fundamental issues that we're facing in the laboratory industry so that we may provide appropriate, adequate testing to the entire nation. So whatever the reason is, if it comes down to an individual or, or individuals or a committee, or it's just not getting done. And so I almost don't care what the issue is today. We simply have to fix diagnostic testing. Fixing diagnostic testing is going to get us back to work. Ultimately, it's going to help us see our elderly parents who are, for the most part, isolated. It's going to help us treat patients. It's going to help us triage patients. It's going to help us with surveillance. You know, you wrap all those things together and it's going to help us with our emotional well-being. So I guess, you know, while, while I am sure we could spend a fair bit of time trying to figure out, you know, who's doing what and is anybody really taking charge here? You know, I'd say, let's look forward. Let, let's, you know, let's be forward thinking. Let's figure out what the heck we can do today going forward because we have to solve this issue. Well, and this comes back to something you wrote about in the piece earlier, uh, like why we need to do a national scale testing program. It's very simple. I mean, we're going through this very painful physical distancing uh, population-wide mitigation system right now. And that's kind of the main tool we've got. It's a very blunt instrument. But if you could do the more classic um, public health work where you identify a, uh, a patient who is sick or one of these asymptomatic people who's able to transmit it, well, if you can test them, you can immediately isolate them and track all of their contacts and like bring down the infectious rate the, the R-naught, as the epidemiologists like to say. And that's the kind of thing that has to be done to wrestle this bear to the ground, uh, to, to make it eventually fizzle out so that we can go back to normal life or something like that. Um, now, but a lot needs to happen for that to happen. What you, You've said that we ought to be able to do a test for all 330 million Americans, right? Um, what, can you walk me through kind of what does a successful diagnostic testing uh, program kind of look like from high above? Well, let's define success in phases, because if we try, if we make the mistake of just focusing on solving every issue today, we are going to solve no issues today and we may not end up solving any issues by tomorrow. And so the way that I think about this is really by stratifying the needs of the nation. Need number one, when somebody is sick or when somebody is, is exposed to somebody who is ill with presumed or 
or confirmed COVID. We need to be able to test those individuals in a consistent fashion, and we need results back promptly. And then the third piece is we must be able to upload that information into a centralized database. So step number one is fix the availability of molecular-based tests, which can be performed at within the national laboratories, which can be performed at local hospitals, in local laboratories, in public health labs, and, so, and even provider offices, although that's not a great idea because we don't want sick people necessarily going into provider offices. So step number one, fix the PCR-based testing chain. That will make, that will ha- take a huge bite out of the challenge. Step number two is much more of an immediate, uh, I'm sorry, an intermediate term step, where by the fall, we need to have a national surveillance plan in place. A national surveillance plan will certainly include PCR-based tests for who's sick and who's not, who has active disease, who does not have active disease. But that's where the serologic testing comes into play as well. The reason that we should not be as focused on implementing serologic testing today, in my opinion, is just a practical one. It's much more complicated to sort through and generate the data that we need to make sure that we understand how to use these serological tests at the national level. Now, just real quick before, for people who may not know, serologic test is a blood test that looks for the presence of antibodies, which, you know, one might form after being exposed to the virus. You, you develop neutralizing antibodies and presumably you're then immune and it's safe for you to go back to work. So that's like really important information we'd want to have. But as you're saying, kind of in the intermediate term. It's not the very first priority. Would we love to have have that information today? Yes, we would. But the fact of the matter is these are new serological tests. Even though they're not complicated, they are new. And until we run the appropriate quick studies on on each of these new tests that are coming to market and we understand what their sensitivity and specificity is for one's exposure to the virus, And also, regardless of their sensitivity and specificity, just because somebody has a positive serologic test, we still need to understand what that that means for one's immune status. Historically, we think, okay, if you've been exposed, you have a positive antibody, you you must have immunity for a certain time period. Well, we certainly think that that's the case with COVID, but we are not certain. And we darn well better be certain before we roll out these tests into a national surveillance program. There are also some really, really slippery scientific questions here too. Like one can imagine with these asymptomatic carriers, maybe they're not generating a whole lot of antibodies. Maybe this comes back to that question about the sensitivity, right? Maybe we can't even detect them. We, we probably have a strong sense already, even though the data has not been published, that we're not going to pick up, in fact, a lot of the asymptomatic carriers with these antibody-based tests. And so you're hitting on a key point because until we do, for example, side-by-side testing with both PCR and serology testing, we are not going to have the answer to that question. And before we roll out a national strategy, we need some of these answers. We don't need a perfect, you know, we don't need a perfect set of answers for every single possible question, but there's some fundamental questions that we need to answer over the next three, four, five months before we roll out serologic testing nationally. And then I'll just go to the third part. So number one, immediate fix PCR-based testing immediately. Number two, 
prepare, generate the data for a national surveillance program using serology tests and PCR-based tests in the fall. And number three, let's make sure we start to rewrite the rules for the discovery, development, and payment of diagnostic testing as a nation so we are not in this position all over again. Well, let's talk a little bit about cost. I mean, these are these are not foundation medicine, you know, cancer genomic panel tests that are like really difficult and high tech. Uh, how much do you think these do cost or ought to cost? Or should we, what should we be paying as a, as a taxpayer for this? Well, what I've heard is that the initial payment for some of these PCR-based tests through the national laboratories is somewhere in the $50 to $60 range. My sense is that's not sustainable. But the good news is that I think if you know if we had a if we had a reimbursement of somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred and a hundred to hundred to one hundred fifty dollars per test, that that's probably a reasonable number to use for a modeling you know from a modeling standpoint. And let's keep in mind, Luke, this past week we approved the first two trillion dollar uh, kind of economic incentive package. I'll, I'll put it that uh, I guess I'll phrase it that way uh, as a nation. I think everyone believes that we are going to see one, two, three, four, five more of these over the coming year. So we are going to spend five to ten trillion dollars at least as a nation in order to, you know, keep 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 the car on the road, you know, so it doesn't go too far astray, and so we can at least bring it back, uh, you know, bring it back on the road without too much damage. Well, and you know, there's a there's a realignment of resources that you know, ought to happen in an orderly way. Once we get out of this like immediate urgent crisis, I think, for example, just a few down uh, miles down the road from me, the University of Washington Virology Lab. I mean, this is a, a world-class academic research lab and they transform themselves overnight into becoming a high volume COVID, you know, like industrial type testing unit. That's not really what they they do or set up to do, but they figured out how to do it and hats off. But <laughs> that's, you know, we need to have like that orderly supply chain and, and the, the state health labs and the hospitals, they all need to become a well-oiled machine so that our academic labs don't need to do this kind of stuff. They can go back to asking basic questions like, does this thing spread via aerosols, right? We have to do that as a nation. And that's why I say, even if, we spend 25% of our nation's laboratory resources on COVID over the next 12 months. So what? Let's go do it. We know it's not 100% because we run millions and millions of tests across the nation every single week. That number might be 10 million. It might be higher right now. And we might it turns, you know, as, as we as we run through the numbers, we might say that it's all hands on deck and we do need the academic labs in, to, to pitch in. And University of Washington has done an incredible job. And it, and it appears that they are a well-oiled machine as it comes to testing when it comes to testing for COVID. There is no reason that we can't even extrapolate that model, replicate that model, come up with our own national model and do it just as well as a nation. This is not difficult to do. We are not trying to put a person on Mars right now. We are trying to take a technology that we've been utilizing in this country for a long period of time 
And we are simply trying to roll it out with an additional, with a new type of test, not a new approach, not a reinvention of anything, a new test. And we are trying to do it at the national level. And so an analogous situation and, and, you know, it might not be intuitively connected to most people, but as I look at our tenure at Foundation Medicine in the oncology space, in 2010, we felt as if there could be an entirely new approach to understanding a patient's tumor. And that means rather than looking at that tumor through a microscope, we're going to interrogate the genome and take a picture of that molecular infrastructure to better understand how to develop therapies for cancer and then treat patients for cancer. We knew that we had that we would ultimately uh, have to work with the FDA to change the way they look at these types of tests. We knew that we would have to work with government and private payers to change the way they look at reimbursement. We knew that we would have to work with academic as well as community of physicians to change the way that they actually practice medicine, practice the medicine of oncology. Ultimately, we were able to do a large part of that over the course of the last decade. In many ways, we have to do the exact same thing here, but from a technology standpoint, it's easier. Yeah. We simply have to shrink this down we have to do it over the course of the course of weeks or months. We cannot do it over the course of years. We have to condense the learnings from the last decade with cancer-based genomic testing, apply it to COVID testing, and I think those lessons learned can actually have a significant impact on what we do here. Technologically, not that hard to do. Different sequence, dif- dif- different virus than, say, flu, but the same methods that you use uh, apply here. You don't need the to reinvent. The same methods that we've been using for a long period of, you know, for an extended period of time in this country. And, you know, your your article was titled Knowledge is Power. We referenced that at the top of the show. But I would add, you know, if you think ahead just six, nine months, knowledge is also confidence. I don't know about you, but, you know, at some point when um, the the veil lifts and we're ready to go back to work and resume what we think is a normal life, We'll start getting on planes again. We'll start traveling around the U.S. We'll start going to other countries. And I don't know about you, but I would feel a lot better if I knew that all 330 million Americans had been tested and we knew exactly who had it and where they were and uh, that there was a surveillance plan in place. And without that information, with you know this, this huge unknown, this cloud of the unknown that we're under... Um, Boy, I mean, I think the economic pain will extend for a long, long time unless we get, you know, knowledge as confidence. And Luke, what you did there with your commentary, you tied together, you know, our discussion that we've been having about how to roll out tests across the nation to the idea of information and data. And that's so critical because oftentimes we re- we think about, you know, diagnostic tests as this product. Well, well they are a product. But really that product is not a res- it's not just a result. It's a piece of informative data that allows us to make decisions for a particular individual. As we aggregate that data, that individual turns into understanding what's happening into a re- you know in a region. As we aggregate more data, we start to get a broader picture. So what's critical is that every one 
every single COVID test that is generated in this nation going forward must be aggregated into a national database, not just the positive ones, but the positive ones and the negative ones, the swab, the nasal swab based ones, as well as the blood based ones. We need to jump on this notion of a national COVID database immediately. Not only will it help get people back to work in a timely fashion, not only will it help with surveillance, as this virus almost certainly comes back, you know, in, 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 in kind of in future iterations or future generations of the virus. But it's also going to help us with refining our diagnostic testing. It's going to help us with therapeutic discovery and development around COVID. It's going to help us with vaccine development. This, na this notion of data being generated from these tests and making sure that data is aggregated into a platform that industry, academia, as well as the government can assess on a timely basis is really critical to the long-term success here as well. Well, again, um, the diagnostic testing infrastructure, it's there. Our capabilities for aggregating and analyzing data are phenomenal. I mean, what you described right. there, it, it sounds ambitious, but on the other hand, it's, an, it's, it's thorny. I mean, you got to work through some of these contracts and issues that you mentioned, but these are solvable problems. We're not like peering deep into the mysteries of biology into the unknown. These are things that can be fixed and must be fixed. As I said before, we're not trying to go to Mars here. We're simply trying to take something that we already know how to do and deploy it in a consistent and comprehensive fashion across the nation. That's it. Mike Pelini, thank you for what you're doing. Keep riding herd on these people that you're talking to in Washington and in the industry. Um, and uh, we'll get through this. Luke, again, I appreciate your attention to this incredibly important matter. And I also want to just, uh, you know, comment on, um, on, on my and our collective appreciation for everything that our colleagues are doing, doing in this industry, uh, as well as all of our frontline colleagues as well in the healthcare system. I mean, they are, they are getting beat up today and we just have to do everything in our power to make sure that we can support them in the appropriate fashion as well. For sure. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. See you next episode.